When I first became a Christian in college, one of the things that I encountered, one of the first things that I encountered as a new believer was my desire to, to learn the uh, deeper things of God. And that kind of being up against my upbringing, which I was taught that things like theology, you know, like this word theology was just a word that I had ever heard in a negative connotation. That it wasn't good to learn those things, that no one really even needs any of that business anyway. And so I had this kind of dilemma within. I grew up in a tradition that valued personal experience over any kind of objectivity. So my desire to learn the deeper things of God kind of grated against my religious experience growing up with the idea that anything a Christian can and should learn is born out of their personal relationship with Jesus rather than being found in some stuffy old books or this stuffy old book. We've gone over this quite a bit here. We've studied things like the Second Great Awakening and its influence over our country with this drift away from confessional standards and toward the creed, no creed but Christ. Today, we, we hear things like it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And these things are still very much growing strong in our faith because any need for divine wisdom and knowledge are trumped by a person, what a person feels and what, what a person experiences and their quote unquote own personal truth. Obviously, our personal experience in Christ is, is important. Of course it is but it must be grounded in the things that we know to be true in God's Word. There is no knowledge outside of God's intervention in our lives. As fallen people, we could not know God without God. In Christ, we are able to know Him again because we have been made alive in Christ. So then our experience then must be informed by the wisdom and the knowledge that we gain from the reading and the hearing and understanding of God's holy word. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in our text today should cause us, the people of God here today, and even the church throughout this country to think twice about its experiential religion and turn again to the authority of Scripture where we are called to wisdom and knowledge. Paul prays two things for the church then in Ephesus and for our church today. And we do well to regularly repeat these prayers for one another. So we'll make that the two points of our study this morning. The first being that God would grant wisdom and knowledge. And the second, that we would know the hope to which we are called. So with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know that the hope that 
you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a bit of context today, it's important as we look at the first words in verse 15, Paul begins by saying, for this reason. For what reason? Should be our first question as we come to this text. Well, for this reason looks back at all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Our election, our adoption, our redemption, our guarantee of our inheritance. Every spiritual blessing is the reason that Paul is alluding to. He then goes on and says, Because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So to be sure, Paul is talking to believers about believers here. The prayer that he is about to demonstrate to us is to be prayed to God on behalf of other believers by other believers. Why? Because the blessings that he refers to are ours in Christ. But another quick note here too is that Paul was the kind of man that was probably in prayer quite a bit. As we read through his letters, he constantly talks about praying for the churches It's not uncommon to see him use this kind of word as he's praying continually for the churches, praying without ceasing. He prayed prayers like the one that we read today, which was largely just a large prayer to God on their behalf. And I think it shows us a few things. First, it shows us the kind of prayers that we ought to be praying for one another for sure. Not that praying for one another's more worldly concerns isn't also important, but we should be Praying for these things like divine wisdom and knowledge. We should be praying these for one another as believing friends in Christ. Paul often named individuals and their circumstances as you read his other letters and those things that he prayed for. But however, when he prayed for the church as a whole, he prayed for them like this. He showed us the importance of this type of prayer. And it also gives us a kind of template for prayer for the church as we pray for other churches even. Oftentimes I'm asked by people who who know about our church and have been watching and praying for us since the beginning, they'll say, Mike, how can we be praying for Redeemer Community Church? And I will say, read Ephesians 1. Read the last part of Ephesians 1. Pray that for us. Not that there's some sort of magic formula here to unlock God's blessing. But any prayer that Paul chose to write down on behalf of the church should carry some weight with us. And that brings us to the first point, that God would grant wisdom and knowledge. Look with me again at verse 15, or 4, 17, sorry. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Two things are prayed for us here, the spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of God. These two things are linked together foremost in the spirit who brings them, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge of revelation. Prayer here is for the Spirit of God to bring us knowledge and wisdom concerning the Father. Remember, as we've been going through the first chapter, we've seen the multiple works and the multiple ministries of the various persons of the Trinity. This is the work of one God, of course, in three persons, eternally distinct but equal in power and glory. And so in order to have knowledge and wisdom, we must have the Spirit in our lives. We mentioned earlier that this is a prayer for believers. And that is exactly to the point. An unbeliever can't have this kind of knowledge outside of having Christ himself. Which is why we preach Christ. We preach Christ continually. But a believer necessarily has this. We have the Spirit. Because all believers have the Spirit of God living in them. Also, notice that knowledge and wisdom are paired here. You shouldn't have one without the other. This is for the believer. This is always this way. I like to think of knowledge without wisdom as like spending a thousand dollars on a happy meal. It's not really understanding the value of the money that you have. It's not quite worth that much. Having something and not knowing how to use it appropriately are two completely different things. For the Christian, we have this great truth, the truth of redemption, the things that we've read up to this point in chapter 1. Now, what do we do with this truth that we have? How do we use it? And I want to say a quick thing about this idea of the revelation of the knowledge of God, just so that we aren't wandering off into la-la land this morning. This does not mean that a believer receives some sort of special revelation from the Spirit outside the revealed Word of God. The revelation that we have of the knowledge of the Father is found in the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room. What did He say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. And He goes on and He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And because of the Spirit, we can know both the Son and the Father who sent the Holy Spirit more. This isn't about the Spirit giving us any kind of special word. We have the most special kind of word ever. The very word made flesh. We do not need anything else. In this knowledge and wisdom, we have our hearts enlightened. We read this in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What's going on here? Having the hearts, or having our hearts enlightened literally means to, to light up or to shine a light into. Because of the Spirit's work in our life, the Word of God has been opened up to us and a light is shining into our hearts, showing us the truth of God's Word. There's a very real sense in which the Spirit of God opens His Word up to us 
This happens all at once when we are new believers. This is the reason why college kid Mike wanted to know the deep things of God. It wasn't because I just got an interest. It's because the Spirit was living in me. But even in our lives as believers, we can be enlightened along the way. A passage that meant nothing to me as an unbeliever now has a very special meaning, of course. But something that the Lord used in one way ten years ago in my life, He'll use a completely different way today. This doesn't mean that the Word of God changes at all. The meaning of God's Word is always the same. It means that I'm changing, that you're changing. And the Spirit works in us, both giving us knowledge of His Word and the wisdom for how to use it. So what do we do with this info? People say things like this to me all the time. As I'm teaching, they'll say, well, I don't understand how you're able to get so much from that story in the Bible. And I always ask a question of them. It's like, so are you praying for understanding? Are you praying for the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him? Because if you're not praying for these things, don't be surprised that you're not getting them. Right? If you want a prayer that God always answers, pray for understanding of His Word. Do you think that your God wants you to know Him? Absolutely He does. We haven't been through a book yet that didn't highlight that over and over again. Pray for understanding. Pray for clarity in the application of His Word. Pray that He would shine His light into your heart. That you might know the things of God. To what end should we be doing this thing so that we might remember the hope that we have? And that brings us to the next point, that we would know the hope to which we are called. Let's look again at verses 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul's second petition here is that we would know the hope to which we are called. How does he qualify this kind of hope that we are to know? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The hope that we have is bound up in our inheritance in Christ, which is a demonstration of His power at work in us. The work of redemption on the cross was once and for all a powerful display ordained by the Father, carried out by the Son, and applied to the believer by the Spirit of God. The work took sinful man and reconciled him to God by the atoning sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God. But that's not all there is to it. It's not just the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that made it good. But it's because the atone, it's because the sacrifice, Jesus himself lived 30 plus years on this earth in perfect obedience to the Father. In his perfect obedience, he earned the Father's satisfaction. These are two great impossibilities as far as I'm concerned. That the sin of a people would be completely atoned for 
right? That, this, that my sins alone would be completely atoned for, much less the sins of all the people of God. And that a man, a mere man, could defeat the curse of sin. This immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe is the application of these two great things. Complete atonement and the perfect righteousness of Christ. But that's not all. Because of this great power was also applied to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died. So this power could be worked in him. Look again at verses 20 and 21. And the end of 19. Greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. So not only was sin defeated, as the Father rose Jesus from the dead, defeating death, so that those who are in Christ could share in this victory that we have over death. And so understand, church, as we read throughout chapter 1, we have read about being in Christ over and over, the things that we have in Christ. We've read about the blessings that we have in Christ. In Christ we have union with Him, and we share with Him in all these things. His atonement for our sins, His victory over sin and death, in his perfect obedience to the Father, so that when Paul prays that you may know what is the hope that he has called you, this is the hope that we have. The glorious inheritance we have is our victory over sin and death. In him we have his righteousness, which brings us into a right relationship with God and ensures that our eternal life will be one of hope and peace rather than torment and despair. But understand this also. We don't need to waste away in this life either. It's not as if we have this great thing that is waiting for us in the future that we must suffer while we're here on earth and then we'll finally get to have this wonderful thing and we have to wait to have any kind of wonderful thing until then. There is some truth, of course. There is earth, or there is suffering here on earth. On this earth, there will be trials. There will be difficult things. Even in our redeemed, victorious state as believers in Christ, we still battle against the flesh. Our own flesh. This unrelenting battle we have against the sin in our own lives. Yet if we lose hope, Because of it, we despair as those who have no hope at all and who don't know anything about the hope that we have. That's why Paul added these last couple verses for us. Verses 22 and 23. And he, the Father, put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him as head over all things. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. The hope that we have in Christ, brothers and sisters, is not just for our future glory. 
Absolutely it is. But we have that hope right now. Because right now, all things have been made subject to him. Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of this truth while he was on earth the night before he would die. He was in the upper room with his disciples and he was speaking of this coming death, this soon to come death about leaving them. And they were afraid. He was telling them of the spirit that would come, which we read about here, this helper. Then knowing the weight that he was putting on the men in the room, he reminded them of this truth that was just told us in Ephesians 1. He said to them, John 16.33, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The world has been put under his feet, and all things in it are subject to to him. There isn't anything. Pagan rulers, disease, disaster, any kind of hardship or persecution. There isn't anything that isn't under his direct supervision and authority. What does that mean? That means this truth that we hold dear. That he has foreordained all things that come to pass. And he does so for his glory and for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And so understand, going back to what we first talked about, all of this theological truth brought forward. If I'm still merely trusting in my personal experience, then I'm going to completely miss all of that. I might even attempt to start to put things under my feet as some sort of power grab that is old as time itself. Perhaps if God's not able to, then I need to start doing this myself. Or, on the other side of the spectrum, I'll probably just be afraid all the time. Afraid of everything. Because I'll be informed by the things that are going on around me. I'll be informed by the experience of this world, by the things that are going on in other countries, by the things that are going on in this country, forgetting that I have a sovereign Lord who holds all these things together. If you struggle with a lack of assurance this morning, it's most likely because you have exchanged your personal experience of faith the way that you feel today or tomorrow or any day for the eternal truth of God's word. But if instead I rely upon the great knowledge that we have in his word, the wisdom gained from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that I have these great and powerful truths in my grasp. This truth isn't bound up in mysteries either that I can't understand, but it's plainly written in my own language, in a way that I can understand it, preserved for all time. And to help me, With God's word. I have the very spirit of God. Living inside of me. Who is right now interceding on my behalf. Before the father. I also have the work of people. Throughout the ages. That have written on these things. For the purpose of building up. Christ's church. 
so that they would know of the hope that they have in them. This knowledge of God and His works, or what we call theology, isn't a theology of academics stuck in a library or in a classroom somewhere. But it's the theology of the everyday man and woman who want more and more the spirit of wisdom and knowledge in their lives. Who wants to know more to the hope that what we have, this hope that we have been called to? What are the riches of his great and glorious inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ? Of course we do. As the late R.C. Sproul would often say, everyone's a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. We will choose to ignore the knowledge and the wisdom that we have, continually seeking out personal experience in order to somehow verify the hope that we have, or will we seek out God's eternal words? Will we seek to rest upon the truth of the gospel, the redemptive plan of the Father, the work of the Son, the ministry of the Spirit? Church, let us know more and more. Let us pray for knowledge more and more to the hope that we have been called. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for one another. And pray that the Lord would use that to teach this mess, this message to a lost and dying world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come before you in prayer, we admit oftentimes that as we look around, we will let the world tell us the truth rather than you. Lord, help us. Help us to cling to your word rather than the dust that we gather around us. Open our eyes. Enlighten our hearts that we would know more of the truth, that we would know more of the hope that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's word.